0: Morality without the gospel is nothing. We need new life, not merely a new system. The Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached to his disciples is often referred to as a do sermon, and it is. It tells us what we are to do, it talks about law and morality and expectations, it tells us how to behave. It is, in fact, suggesting we modify our behavior. But behavior modification, absent gospel transformation, leads to nothing less than soul devastation. You know what vital signs are, right? We talk about vital signs. They show you how how well your body's functioning you know, things like blood pressure, pulse, body temperature, respiratory rate, right? These are things that people who are alive have. You can tell if someone's alive if their heart's beating and and they're breathing. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 gives us signs of life in his people. Christian conduct is what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. And Christian conduct is, first of all, Christian Christian conduct arises out of Christian character and so Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes which describe what the Christian is like all Christians not not just super Christians not uh, not radical Christians every Christian there are no ordinary Christians y'all there are no ordinary Christians because every being a Christian means you were once dead and now you're alive. That's anything but ordinary. Every Christian is a miracle. And, and miracles make mangled things into magnificent things. And that's what Jesus does with each and every one of us. And that's what he intends to do to the world through each and every one of us. You're going to get a glimpse of what kingdom life looks like as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, and the life in the, in the kingdom of God looks like obedience, obedience to the king of the kingdom, right? People who tend to get bent out of shape about words like obedience uh, and claim that that's, you know, that's legalistic, they're going to run into problems with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. What we see clearly from Jesus' teaching is that the Christian life is not just about feeling good about what God has done for us, but about being about what God intends for us. That's not moralism. That, that, that's not more, that, that, that's just a, that's a matter of cause and effect, right? That's just cause and effect. Christ brought life and life abundantly, and life is supposed to look like life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, no signs of life, but you have been made alive in Christ. What's that look like? What's it look like? So we're beginning the series in the ser- uh, series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're wondering how long we'll be in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, best I can tell from now, probably through the end of the year. I was telling Foster this earlier. You know, it's, it's just, there's a lot here. It's like digging a hole. You know, the more the more you take, the bigger it gets. So we'll be here a little while. Let's dive in this morning. Book of Matthew, chapter 5. I'm going I'm to go ahead and read the first 12 verses just so we get the whole thing, all right? But we're only going to be looking at the first two this morning. But let's go ahead and turn our attention now to God's word in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the words of the one true and living God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said, we're taking the first two this morning. Poor in spirit, those who mourn. Plenty of books and tips and TED Talks and courses on the secret to happiness these days. But if we learned anything from 15 sermons on the book of Ecclesiastes, we know it's all vanity. right? Whatever the world's brand of Of happiness is, it's empty. Real happiness is something that's given by God to be received by us. It's not something that can be gotten. It has to be given and received. And when we've received it, it tends to be noticeable, or it should anyway, because living things have vital signs of life. The Beatitudes are a list of blessings. Blessed are those, he says over and over. And the word used here, blessed, it connotes joy. It is happiness. It's the status of someone holding that joy that they have received, that's been given to them. And so this is a nice landing place actually coming out of the book of Ecclesiastes because what Jesus shows us here is that even in the midst of life's deepest disappointments and turmoil, we can be deeply and profoundly happy. First thing to notice in the sermon that Jesus has begun preaching to his disciples, we see in verse one, is that it's to his disciples, not everyone. There were crowds, there were crowds, but Jesus goes away from the crowds, he goes up on the mountain, his his disciples follow him, sit down with him, and then this sermon is what he started saying. Now notice too, Jesus doesn't say, he, He doesn't say, All right, look, guys, this that I'm about to tell you, all this stuff that this knowledge I'm about to drop on you. This is the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say that. In fact, in John's gospel, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not describing what you must do in order to be blessed. He's describing what the blessed are like. Those who are blessed are those who are in Christ, and if we are in Christ, we are to be like Christ, and this is what Christ is like. Christian conduct only arises out of Christian character. So only those who are blessed already can be or do any of these things, but the blessed must be and do these things. Sort of an overarching thing I want you to recognize as we work through this series on the Sermon on the Mount is that the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount is the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So, when we read each of these Beatitudes, we need to think of Jesus. Jesus himself was poor in spirit. He was the one who who mourned and was comforted. He was meek, not haughty, hungered and thirsted for righteousness, uh, was and is merciful, pure in heart, makes peace. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake. He was all those things. He was blessed, he was happy. I doubt very much Jesus walked around looking grumpy all the time. I I think there were times when he looked angry, and he was angry, and rightfully so. I think there are times that he, he was sad and looked sad and rightfully so. But anyone who knew Jesus then and anyone that knows Jesus now would probably not describe him as somebody who looked sad and angry all the time. But serious, serious and supremely happy. And where he gets his happiness is the same place we get ours. And with that, here's the main idea of the sermon this morning. Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. We're looking at these first two Beatitudes, and they will be our two points, okay? Jesus emptied himself and became poor in spirit so that we would be emptied ourselves and become poor in spirit. Jesus mourned over sinfulness... That we would become like him and mourn over our sinfulness, the sinfulness of the world. This is big stuff. We gotta connect the dots here. I want to take it, take it slow, keep it simple. You know, we don't don't want to bite off more than we can chew or try to have the whole meal in one sitting. But I will say the beatitudes are inseparable. Keep that in mind. We're having to divide it up a little bit for the sake of time. But do recognize that they're, they're a whole. This is a whole package here. Every Christian is supposed to be all of these things all at once. These aren't spiritual gifts, okay, that some Christians have and other people don't, or they have different ones. Every Christian is every one of these things at the same time. And as we go through them, you may, you may feel like, well, I, I can sort of recognize that one, but maybe not so much in the. Well, that's just because of remaining imperfection in you, Okay. But every Christian is every one of these things. The Beatitudes are inseparable. So I don't want to belabor the point, but I think it's important to remember that as we go, go through these. Um, so let's just start here with this poor in spirit thing. Let's start with the poor in spirit thing. How's that relate to Christ? How's that relate to us? Simple enough. And let's start with Jesus, because that's always a good bet. It's always a good, good bet to start with Jesus. What's it mean he was poor in spirit? Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He doubles down on that, right? Not just death, death on a cross. If you were to read that in the first century, you would gasp right there. That was the most awful, painful, humiliating way to die then. I mean, that's how... The worst criminals and scum of the earth were suffered punishment under Rome. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross, Paul says, and he was blessed. The very next verse in Philippians tells us so. He says, "God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord." To the glory of God the Father. A few verses before that, in that same chapter, we read that though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, just side note here, so no one runs off in the direction of heresy, okay? Jesus did not lay aside his divinity, that's not what emptied himself means. He was never not God. He is one person with two natures. His being born a man was subtraction by addition, if you can catch that. He emptied himself by adding to himself a human nature, he didn't exchange his divinity, and he didn't become any less God. But how unfathomably humble was he to take on a human form when he's the one responsible for having created human form? I mean, can you imagine being a potter and making yourself a lump of clay? How, how deep the love of God for us. He became like us for this reason. He became like us so that we would become like him. So how does this relate to us, being poor in spirit? How are we blessed blessed in that? What's happy about that condition? These first two Beatitudes give us a real impression of what we are in the presence of God, which is nothing. Here's the great paradox of our religion that people hate. It's our recognition of our nothingness that shows us our value. That's crazy, right? It's our recognition of our nothingness that shows us our, our worth and our value. All we need to come to God is nothing. It's all we need. All we need is nothing. Problem is, most people don't have it. Most people don't have nothing. We 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 have our our uh, our, our long resumes and and lists of credentials that we present to God and say, "Look, I'm I'm good. I'm I'm worthy." No, we're not. We're not worthy, and we need to know it. What we need is nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. that old hymn, Rock of Ages? Those who are poor in spirit are those who know they are needy. That's who the poor in spirit are. They know they're needy. We don't want to be needy, though. Even if we recognize that we are, we, we're not super comfortable admitting it. But Jesus says we're blessed in recognizing and confessing our need, and that's a fundamental part of the Christian life. Y'all are going to find out. These are kind of in an order. There's a logical sequence here, okay? Jesus knows what he's doing. It starts here. This is fundamental to the Christian character, being poor in spirit, recognizing our need. Jesus warns the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. He says, you say I am rich and need nothing, not recognizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's a dangerous thing to think you need nothing. Jesus says you need to know. And those that know him do know. Those that know Him do know. They know they're needy, and those are the people who are blessed. Those who have no other hope than in Christ, those who recognize their spiritual poverty and look to Him alone for deliverance. Their trust is in Him because they recognize they have nothing else to trust in, nothing else to rely on. And their satisfaction is in Him because as they look around under the sun, they realize nothing else really satisfies and, you know, here's a question. If all we can do to be forgiven of our sin is to cry for mercy, then we must, we must know we need it, right? We have to know we need mercy in order to want mercy, don't we? How can we know we need it if we're unaware or unwilling to acknowledge our debt of sin against God? That's the one who is poor in spirit. Only the Christian can know this condition because it is given to him by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit quickens hearts that are dead in their sins and trespasses. They can't feel their sin because they're dead. Dead people don't feel. Alive people do. And when the Holy Spirit makes a soul come to life, the first thing it feels is dread. All of a sudden it knows its poor condition and its need. It's need. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The ones who are emptied of themselves are the ones who will be filled. Christ emptied himself so we would follow suit. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We do. We do. We think that's something to be grasped. It's the lie we believed in the garden, right? The serpent said, God doesn't want you to have it because he knows in the day if you eat of it, you'll you'll become like God yourself." Jesus is God and humbled himself to become a man. And here we are, mere men claiming to be God's, crying, not yours, but my will be done. That's who we are naturally. Not so for the Christian. The Christian is poor in spirit, recognizing his need because he is blessed and his soul knows it well. Those are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How's that work? do we try to avoid mourning at all costs? How are we blessed? How are we happy in mourning? Well, I suppose we have to ask what, what we're mourning over. You know, mourn over what? Is this just g- generally people who mourn? We have to remember, first of all, we're talking about God's people, and we're talking about being like Christ. He became like us so we could become like him. And if that means being poor in spirit, recognizing we have nothing and that we are needy sinners, then mourning here must refer to mourning our sinful condition that we've now become aware of. Did Jesus mourn over sin? Of course. Not his own sin. He didn't have any. But we do. Jesus mourned over your sin, so so should you. He became like us so we could become like him. Those who mourn over their sinfulness and don't ignore it, that's who's blessed. And they're not blessed because they mourn, they mourn because they are blessed. They are blessed to be God's people, and that's a mark of being one of God's people. You're someone who mourns over your own sin and looks around at the world and is disheartened because of sin in the world. Here's the comfort, here's the confidence you have. It won't always be that way. It won't always be that way. You won't always have to grieve over your own sin because one day you'll be in glory where there is no sin. You will no longer grieve the one that you love and that you sinned against. What will that be like? You know, you think about your human relationships for a minute, how much it it, it pains you to know that you have disappointed someone that you love. You know, a parent or or, or a spouse or a close friend. That hurts because you know while you love that person, your words or your actions or both betray your profession of your love for that person. That's the Christian life right there. That's the Christian life. Knowing you're holding love and blessing you don't deserve. That awkward moment of being like, I don't, "I don't. I shouldn't have this. I, I shouldn't have. I, I shouldn't have this. This love. I'm undeserving." One day you'll be able to love completely and perfectly, though. And if you love God now, one thing you'll experience in this life is a mourning and a grief over the fact that you don't love God the way you know you should. You're grieved over sin, and yet you're at peace with God. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Blessed are you that you, you, you grieved over your sin and yet are at peace with God. Take comfort. So in these first two Beatitudes, we see we are sinners. We mourn over the fact that we are sinners. We know our condition, and we don't make excuses for it. And so here, right away, we have law and grace working together. You see this? The law convicts us of our sin, and the grace of God melts our hearts. It's the grace of God that allows us to respond appropriately to our condition. And the appropriate response is to mourn. God's people are blessed people, and God's people mourn over their sin. Now, I, I think we need a word of caution here, okay? Mourning, doesn't, mourning over your sin doesn't mean you walk around hanging your head depressed all the time, okay? That, that, that is not the kingdom lifestyle Jesus is proposing here. It'll just be a sad sack, okay? You, you guys, you know... Uh, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Don't be Eeyore, okay? Eeyore is not a good character to emulate. We don't walk around going, who oh, blows me, right? That's that, you know, that kind of behavior and that kind of thinking really comes out of a, a self-focus that's the flip side of pride. You know, we often think of, of being prideful as being cocky, being arrogant, boasting in oneself, but self-pity is prideful too because it all comes from the same place. It's an overemphasis. On the self. We mourn over our sin, but we don't dwell on our sin. We dwell on the object of our affection, and the object of our affection is Christ Jesus. Because he has chosen to make us the object of his affection. That's what leads to genuine happiness. What else? How else can you respond? That's why those who mourn are blessed. Now, here's what to remember about being poor in spirit and being those who mourn and all of the beatitudes, right? These are not natural tendencies. You know, if someone comes to mind and you think, oh, yeah, you know, I've seen that before. You know, they're, they're poor in spirit, mourn. You're, you're probably missing it, okay? Because you're describing something that Jesus is not describing here. These are not natural dispositions, These are not personality traits. These are characteristics of a blood-bought, redeemed sinner who is now living before the face of God and walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which he was called. That's what this is. It's supernatural, y'all. Nobody by nature, nobody is born like this. Everybody who is born again is like this. Everyone regenerated by the Holy Spirit and only those. It's a condition of feeling an awareness that we have nothing good to offer, and, and we mourn the bad that we do have. It's the posture we have in the face of God. And if this is not your posture before God, you've never faced him. You can't look at him without becoming poor in spirit. So if anyone thinks being poor in spirit is a desirable thing and something that they ought to do, and you're thinking, you're asking yourself the question this morning, well, how do I do that? How to become poor in spirit? Look at God. Look at his, his, his holiness, his law, his justice. And then realize the only way he can have anything to do with you is his grace. That'll make you poor in spirit and it will cause you to mourn over your sin, to see it for what it is. You'll learn to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. That's what Christians do because that's who Christians are. He became like us so that we could become like him. I look forward to picking up where we're leaving off this morning, next week. Let me close this in prayer. Lord our God, your words to us, (laughs) your word, you describe it as a double-edged sword, and it is. It cuts both ways. God, we see that we are unworthy, and we, we see that you have, you have, For some reason, just because of your grace, because of the freedom of your choice and your sovereignty, have chosen to set your love on us. And God, we don't know how to deal with it. Help us to know it. Help us to understand it. Help us, Lord, to to see the freedom and blessing that we have through the sacrifice of your son. Lord Jesus, help us to look up to you, not just learn about you, Let us learn about you, but let us look up to you. Sincerely create in us a, a desire that we want to become more and more like you. Holy Spirit, would you do that as you promise in your word that you would be making us more and more into the image of Christ? For our good, for the good of others, for the glory of your kingdom. Do it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.